Hi folks, welcome to another instalment of the World War Nation podcast with myself, World War II explorer, Lawrence Waller. Join me on a journey of discovery into the past and present as we set out to explore the history of the Second World War. Our travels will take us from the home front to the battlefields of Europe and beyond. Travel with us as we revisit historical locations and walk the battlefields of World War II. We'll be tracking down wartime artefacts, speaking with veterans and historians alike, and paying our deepest respects to this remarkable generation, as we set out to try and help keep this period of history alive for future generations to learn from, and to try and tell the personal stories of those who bore witness to these monumental world events. It's going to be a long journey. In fact, it's going to be a lifelong journey, and I want you to join me on what will be a great adventure. If you wish to help support the World War II Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash worldwar2nationhq, or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. Today we turn our attention to the Battle of the Bulge, and more specifically the events surrounding the Belgium town of Bastogne. Paratrooper Donald Burgett, one of those members of the 101st Airborne who fought in Bastogne, called it Seven Rows to Hell, whilst never referred to it as the Hole in the Donut. This Belgium town found itself right at the epicentre of these monumental events, witnessing scenes of ferocious fighting as this battle unfolded around it in some of the harshest conditions manageable. I'm joined by Belgium historian Dr. Peter Shrivers to learn more about what unfolded here in that bitterly freezing cold winter of 1944. Peter, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure, Lawrence. You've obviously gone on to write a really interesting book, Those Who Hold Bastogne. How did you become so interested in the Battle of Bulge, and for that matter specifically in the Battle for Bastogne? Well, yes, listen, Lawrence, I, I am Belgian, of course, so uh, I, I spent quite a few vacations, both in summer and winter in in the Ardennes. Um, And so I crisscrossed the entire region. Um, And in doing so, over the years, I met all kinds of interesting people who, um, you know, I'm talking about 1980s, 1990s, many witnesses still alive. So I talked to many civilians, especially at first, and then gradually also began to meet veterans revisiting the area. Because I noticed as they as they became retired, they had more time on their hands and, and it became really important for them to go back to where they had been involved in this big battle, uh, which which remained very important in their lives. Many, many seem to have been really traumatized for life by it and, and, and tried to kind of go back to that time to kind of relive it, process it. And and in the course of doing that, of course, I met them and talked with them. So both civilians talking about the Battle of the Belge, uh, veterans. But I remember also uh, visiting um, Bastogne and the villages around it several times and, um, you know, sticking my head into abandoned farm barns or walking through woods and meadows. And certainly in the 1980s and 1990s, you could still find all kinds of artifacts related to the Battle of the Bulge as if it had all just happened years ago. Um, I remember finding a farm barn near Bastogne at one point where you could still see 
the the crates, ammunition crates. I actually in one of the crates found old copies. It's hard to believe, but old copies of the um, U.S. Army newspaper, Stars and Stripes, dated early January 1945. So soldiers had been reading those new newspapers in early uh, January 1945 while the battle for Bastogne was still raging. And you could see in these newspapers headlines from earlier in December when, when the battle had started. So it's simply hard to believe. And it triggered my imagination, uh, my curiosity. And later on, when I became a professional historian and studied first in Belgium, then in the United States. I'd always told myself, you know, at one point I'll be writing a book about the Battle of the Bulge, but certainly specifically also about uh, this battle for Bastogne. Is it fair to say that the Ardennes offensive was Hitler's last great throw of the dice? As you make the point in your book that for the Germans, the Battle of the Bulge was more than just a counteroffensive. Why is that? Yes, that, that, that's a key question, Lawrence. Um, you see that there is the, the decision to launch the Ardennes counteroffensive is taken in mid-September 1944. So at that time, the situation is, of course, not good for Nazi Germany, for Hitler. Um, Rome has been taken, there's been the invasion of Normandy. Um, there's been this, this very rapid uh, blitzkrieg on the Allied side now, with much of Belgium being liberated by mid-September uh, 1944. But, but also by that time, you see that the Allied logistical lines are getting very long, being stretched. So there's a bit of a slowdown. And, and Hitler, in that context, says, well, there are still opportunities to be taken here. And if we wait much longer, once the winter has passed, there will be this massive renewed Allied offensive and Nazi Germany will be lost. Of course, this is also seen in the context of Soviets making very good progress into Eastern Europe already. And so he takes a decision for a counteroffensive where his generals are more prudent and are saying, well, our resources are becoming limited. We need to go for what they call the small solution, which is a limited counteroffensive on the Western Front to put the brakes on that Allied offensive there. Limited in the sense of, they say, for example, why not focus on encircling um, mostly American troops that have stuck their necks out in the Aachen and Hürtgenwald area? Area, um, you know, inflict severe losses on them and slow down their offensive that way. But Hitler doesn't want to hear about any kind of small solution. He wants what he calls the big solution. He wants an all-out offensive, which is aimed not at inflicting pain and losses and slowing them down, but changing the course of the war. So what he wants is a big, massive counteroffensive that will make the Western alliance of Americans and Brits and Canadians collapse. He's not a big believer in uh, the, the uh, waging war with an alliance. He's an admirer of Frederick the Great of Prussia uh, of the 18th century who managed to um, you know, inflict defeat on, on large coalitions stacked up against him. And he, think, he thinks he can do that again himself. It, by launching a massive counteroffensive through the Ardennes in the in December 1944 in the direction of Antwerp, and so he has two advantages doing that in this big solution. Uh, the first advantage is we'll take the port of Antwerp, which is the crucial logistical hub. 
uh, and deny that to the allies. This will cause friction. This will cause um, kind of a panic among the allies, recriminations. But also, if you look at how that offensive is planned, it's it it, it moves through the Ardennes in the direction of Liège, Namur, the Meuse River, crossing the Meuse River towards Antwerp. When you look at that offensive, it it moves through the seam of what is the American sector and the British sector, that weak seam between the 12th Army Group of Bradley and the 21st Army Group of Montgomery. And so he reasons, Hitler, that by launching this particular Ardennes counteroffensive through that seam, across the Meuse, towards Antwerp, the logistical hub that added up, this will cause such mayhem and panic in Western allied uh, lines that the alliance will collapse he will win the war on the Western Front, and then he will be able to turn all of his attention to the Eastern Front, defeat the Soviets, win World War II. So it's not just for him a counteroffensive. It's not just about gaining time. It is really about um, a strategic shift and winning this war at a point where everyone is thinking, well, you know, Hitler is lost. Bastogne in 1944 was a town inhabited by barely 4,000 people. How did this small place come to play such a pivotal role in the Battle of Bulge, and why was it so important to both sides? Yes, crucial question, of course. Um, now, first of all, you have to look at, uh, let's say, the lay of the land, the terrain of the Ardennes. Hitler chooses the Ardennes for the counteroffensive because there's an element of surprise in that. It is not a countryside well suited for armor. So you're not going to expect an attack there. Of course, the Germans had already pulled that off in May 1940. But then again, Hitler reasons, well, they're certainly not going to think that lightning will strike twice in that place. So that adds to the element of surprise. But of course, it has disadvantages for the Germans too. Element of surprise is, is, is one of their advantages. But the disadvantage is, well, now you have to pull it off. You have to manage to push through the Ardan with armor and vehicles and so on. So this is an area that's quite hilly at times really rugged, uh, densely forested oftentimes. So every, it, and it, it only has a network, the Ardennes still today, of, of quite smallish roads, small tones and crossroads. But each of those, each road, each crossroad, like Bastogne and its seven roads that come together there, are therefore crucially important. You have to have control or gain control over them to be able to move rapidly. And keep in mind, the Germans are using a very strict, very rigid timetable. Everything has to go very fast. They need to push through the Ardennes very rapidly because for them, the battle is not in the Ardennes. It is across the Meuse where you have uh, flat land and you can move very rapidly with your armored divisions towards Antwerp. Um, so in that sense, Bastogne always figures prominently as that crossroads in the Ardennes. At first, it figures prominently mostly for one Panzer Corps in the 5th Panzer Army, which is commanded by von Manteuffel. And you have to look at the order of battle in the Ardennes. The Ardennes offensive is launched by three big armies. To the north, it's the 6th Panzer Army. In the center, it's the 5th Panzer Army. And then in the south, you have a 7th Army, which mainly serves as a shield against what will 
eventually the Germans now be uh, counterattacked by Baden's third army. So it's all about in the center, the fifth Panzer army and in the north, the sixth Panzer army. But the fifth Panzer army has a supporting role. The, the Schwerpunkt, the main point of emphasis in the original planning of the Ardennes counteroffensive is with the northernmost army, the sixth Panzer army. Fifth Panzer army in the center is is very powerful force, plays a very important role, but it's a supporting role for the sixth Panzer army. Now, for that fifth Panzer army, and specifically one of its three corps, the 47 Panzer Corps, they are in the sector that will encounter Bastogne. And so early on, you see the commander of the 47 Panzer Corps, von Lutwitz, tell his divisional commanders, we need to take Bastogne as quickly as possible, because if we do so, we have the roads leading west. If we don't, Bastogne will remain an ulcer on our communication lines, and it will always slow us down. Now, so Bastogne is important for von Lutwitz and the 47 Corps within the 5th Panzer Army in the center of that counteroffensive from the very beginning. But what happens is that in the course of the first week of the offensive, the 6th Panzer Army, which is supposed to make the main breakthrough, it's attack stalls, it fails in front of the Elsenborn Ridge, whereas the 5th Panzer Army under von Manteuffel finds a gaping hole in its sector around the town of Ufalis. And so now their troops begin to stream past Ufalis to the south, to the north. Now, what the Americans have to do, because it's mostly American troops in this, in this sector, is, of course, military doctrine tells you that if you want to um, prevent a salient, an enemy salient from broadening, you need to hold the shoulders. And if you look at where the shoulders are of von Manteuffel's 5th Panzer Army and its breakthrough around Ufalis, it is to the north of its breakthrough. It is the town of Sankt Witt. And to the south of that breakthrough, it is the town of Bastogne. So Bastogne, from the very beginning, always seen as an important crossroads that had to be captured, but now with the Schwerpunkt shifting from the 6th Panzer Army to the north towards the 5th Panzer Army in the center being the most successful one, these two towns to the north of the salient, Sankt Viet to the south Bastogne, need to be captured by the Germans. Now, we know that the Americans put up very strong resistance at Sankt Viet for many days, fight courageously there, but Sankt Viet false. It is captured by the Germans on December the 21st. And if you look at Bastogne on that day, yes, by that time, it is completely for the first time on December the 21st encircled. But American troops are inside and they're holding it. And this is what makes all the difference. Now, the only tone and crossroads held by the Allies is Bastogne and the only place that can put the squeeze on that German breakthrough in the direction of the Meuse and Antwerp. So clearly, Bastogne is going to grow in importance day after day, week after week. In the earliest days of the battle, American infantry and armour east of Bastogne played a crucial role in defending the town. You claim they were given what amounted to a suicide mission. Can you explain? Yes, definitely a suicide mission. Uh, no exaggeration, I think. Um, what happens is that, um, as I said, 
Bastogne is in the way of the German advance, uh, which is being led by von Manteuffel, his 5th Panzer Army, and specifically the 47th Panzer Corps. So it is the 47th Panzer Corps heading in the direction of Bastogne after the jump off on December the 16th, 1944. Now, keep in mind, um, force ratio is... Um, in the, if you look at the Germans heading through the American sector in the direction of Bastogne, it's, it's a force ratio of German to American 10 to 1. Um, 10 to 1. And the distance from the jump off line on the German Luxembourg border to Bastogne is about 19 air miles. So the Expectation should have been, well, the Germans will go through this like a hot knife through butter. But in Bastogne, by the time the Ardennes offensive, counteroffensive is launched, is located the headquarters of the 8th Corps. It is commanded by American General Troy Middleton, and he is a very experienced commander. So he realizes very early on when he becomes aware of the scope of the attack and of what the end objectives might be, crossing the Meuse and so, and so on, that Bastogne, where he is, is going to have to be uh, held if they want to slow down uh, German, the German advance. So he's looking at the troops that are still available between Bastogne and that German jump off line on the west wall, on the German Luxembourg border. And what he finds there is not very encouraging. It is one regiment, one American regiment of the 28th Infantry Division, namely the 110th Infantry Regiment. Um, again, a force ratio of Germans 10 to 110th Infantry Regiment 1. Um, very thinly spread out. And also keep in mind the state of these troops. Um, this is the 28th Infantry Division. This regiment belongs to that. That's just been withdrawn from the Hürtgen Forest. It's been mauled. So the surviving veterans are exhausted uh, and they are taking care of many, many new replacements who have no front experience. And so these are the troops in a ratio of 10 German to one American who have to hold the front line so as to give Middleton the opportunity to have reinforcements arrive in Bastogne on time. He orders them to stand fast to not pull back. And so he orders them essentially into a suicide mission. If you look at the 110th Infantry Regiment on the day of the German counteroffensive, it brought up to renewed strength with replacements of about 3,200. By the end of the third day of fighting, when the 101st Airborne Division finally does arrive in Bastogne to hold it, um, about 600 of the 3,200 men of the 110th Infantry Regiment are still left. All the others are casualties, uh, killed, wounded, taken prisoners. So mauled in a way that is unimaginable. And, and Middleton is, is tough there. You know, there, there are several occasions where commanders say, well, can't we pull back? And he says, no, if we pull back, we lose Bastogne. And it's not just the 110th Infantry Regiment. They have some back 
backup from, fortunately, some backup from elements of uh, one regiment, let's say, combat command of the 9th Armored Division, but they are green troops. They too are mauled. So these are really the, the troops standing in the way of the Germans heading towards Bastogne. They do an excellent job, but it costs them dearly in what is really a suicide mission, yes. And they, 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 you know, they should be commanded uh, for what they've done in terms of uh, helping to hold the town of Bastogne. We tend to always pay attention to the 101st Airborne Division, and they did, of course, an excellent job inside Bastogne. But we should never talk about holding Bastogne without mentioning the 28th Infantry Division and specifically that one regiment. Well, Peter, that's a staggering statistic. And as you say, we really do need to pay tribute to those men for making it possible for the reinforcements to get there before the Germans could. You, you've you mentioned, obviously, the 101st Airborne Division. Um, what shape were these American paratroopers in when they arrived in Bastogne? Well, that's another remarkable fact, of course, Lawrence. You, you, you have to keep in mind where they are coming from at the, 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 the time where they're arriving in Bastogne. Um, they've gone through the Normandy campaign, which was, of course, tremendously taxing. And then um, they were sent into Holland, of course, in September 1944 in Operation Market Garden. We tend to forget where it concerns that particular operation that um, you know, the paratroopers were dropped on bridges over canals and rivers and they helped to hold them and then the ground forces arrived and their story is over. But we know, of course, that Operation Market Garden failed. They never reached Arnhem. And what happens in September, late September 1944, is that when Arnhem is not taken, they, of course, have developed a salient into Holland that they do not want to give up. So they hold on to that salient, which is attacked by Germans from all sides. And the two American airborne divisions uh, in that salient are kept there. They're not pulled back. So also the 101st Airborne Division, they stay inside that salient under constant attack in what you know becomes a wet autumn. And they stay there until the end of November. They stay there until the end of November in terrain that is very um, that 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 reminds you of of the trenches of World War One, muddy, uh, wet, under constant attack. They're being used as infantrymen. They're no longer being used as airborne troops. But of course, um, it's tremendously taxing both physically and mentally. And so when they're pulled back by the end of November towards France, the Champagne area, Mourmelon, where they go into French barracks for some rest and, 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 and recuperation. They're in a, in a very poor state. Keep in mind that at that time, the men of the 101st Airborne Division, as well as those of the 82nd Airborne Division, by the way, they expect only to go into battle again in the, in the early spring of 1945 for the campaign against Germany and probably airborne operations uh, uh, near the Rhine the crossing of the Rhine. So they think that they have months to go in which they can rest, um, accept replacements into their ranks, train them properly. So what they do is at the end of November, early December, they hand in all of their uh, uniforms and equipment and their shoes. Um, 
And you see that they're in a poor state already there. Uh, you have uh, accounts of several suicides within the ranks, even higher uh, ranking officers commit suicide. So, so you know, they, they've gone through hell in Normandy. They've gone through hell in, especially, again, just recently Operation Market Garden. And then comes by mid-December, suddenly this totally unexpected um, call to you know, jump on trucks, not get into aircraft, but jump on trucks, drive, what, 100 miles all the way to Belgium to hold Bastogne. They, they're in poor mental health. They have many replacements with them that have no combat experience. Many have no winter clothing on them. Many have no weapons with them. They have to scrounge for weapons while they're in Bastogne. It's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. Um, and this is the state in which they are plunged into the middle of Bastogne and told, you know, <laughs> this is the tone you have to hold against um, superior forces heading your way. So it, it, it is an amazing feat to see this division pull that off. Um, because they will remain in Bastogne. That's also uh, something that is often forgotten uh, because we talk about yeah, the battle ends with the arrival of Patton on December the 26th, but the 101st Airborne Division will stay in Bastogne and fight in and around Bastogne for an entire month. They only pull back uh, on January the 18th, 1945. So an amazing feat. Given the poor shape they're in, how can it be explained that they managed to hold Bastogne against these overwhelming odds? Well, that that I think is a very important question. And, and you know, I, I sometimes um, do guided tours in and around Bastogne with, with visitors and try to explain that to them because um, I think there are two main reasons. Um, uh, esprit de corps, uh, unit cohesion, uh, unit pride. Uh, which is very typical of these elite airborne divisions, although they do contain many replacements. Um, the cadre is, of course, experienced uh, and is proud of what they have accomplished up to that moment. So I think that is crucially important. And on the other hand, it is um, the fact that the defense of Bastogne is not just an airborne defense, it is a combined arms defense. And so let, let, let me clarify both aspects perhaps briefly. Esprit de corps, unit cohesion, um, I think the best illustration of that rather than give you know, a, a big theoretical analysis of that is uh, when on Tuesday morning, so the, the, the Ardennes offensive is launched on Saturday, December the 16th by the Germans, the American paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division begin to arrive in Bastogne by the late evening of that Monday. And so they keep filtering in through that night into Tuesday morning. On Tuesday morning, they begin to be sent out to wherever they're needed most. And as they push, because they arrive at the western side of Bastogne, that's the safest side since the Germans are you know, advancing from the east. But they're then from that Western staging area, they push through Bastogne eastwards to where the Germans are supposed to be. And there is a story of a cook uh, from a service unit on the Bastogne market square. 
and they're cooking up some meals uh, for paratroopers passing through in the morning, heading towards the enemy. And as he puts some food on 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 a plate or whatever for a paratrooper passing, the, the cook says to that one or first airborne paratrooper, "But where's your rifle?" <laughs> the paratrooper says, "I have no rifle, but I'm going to take it off a dead crowd." And I think you know this illustrates, at least to me, when I found that um, fragment in the source, I thought, "Yeah, th this is what." typifies that kind of airborne unit, that spirit, that attitude. And if you multiply that my, uh, by you know, so many other uh, paratroopers in, 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 in that division, you can understand why from a mental point of view, although they were in a battered state, they were going to pull this off. That said, there is also the aspect of combined arms. They were not inside Bastogne on their own. If they had been Lawrence, they would never have been able to hold Bastogne. Let's be honest about that. They get support from a combat command, let's say a regiment of the 10th Armored Division, which manages to reach Bastogne from the third Patton's Third Army um, just before the town is encircled. So they have a tank unit inside. Siphoned off from near the Dutch-German border and arriving in Bastogne just in time before it is encircled is also very importantly a tank destroyer battalion. And that is a battalion that consists of several dozen Hellcats, uh, which are you know, very powerful, very mobile tank destroyers with 76 millimeter guns that were capable of destroying even the best German tanks. So this is an asset of, of tremendous importance to the airborne troops. In combination, you have several battalions of rather heavy artillery that um, pull into the Bastogne defensive lines just in time, three to four battalions of very heavy artillery, 150 millimeter guns, the so-called long toms. They are stationed in the southwestern area of Bastogne, and they're so powerful that they can reach all around Bastogne's perimeter. So wherever it is going to be a, a major German attack, they can reach that area and um, cause you know, significant losses to, to uh, German forces. Um, from where they are in the southwest. And keep in mind, a week later, the skies clear out, blue skies, and you have air force support, which the Germans had uh, to a much lesser extent in the Ardennes offensive. So if you add all that up, it begins to make sense why inside this smallish town, a force of about 15,000 Americans a holdout against um, what are spirit German forces in, in number, and sometimes in terms of quality in that they are armored forces, of course. It's only because they can rely on combined arms. One man that knows, I think it's fair to say, about the use, the effective use of artillery firepower is Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe. Can you tell us a little bit about him and how he comes to find himself in command of these forces holding Bastogne? Yes, interesting question, of course, because he plays such a crucial role, uh, among other things, because he's an artillery commander, of course, but at the same time, he's, he's, he's there as commander uh, by pure coincidence. 
um, because the actual commander of the 101st Airborne Division is, is of course, Maxwell Taylor, but he had left um, not long before the Ardennes counteroffensive uh, and gone to Washington, D.C. on official business. So he's, he's actually in the United States. Uh, far away from the front lines, um, but but even his um, right hand man, General uh, Higgins, is in the UK, together with with various other high ranking uh, divisional officers, because they're doing a kind of you know lessons learned from Operation Market Garden. And so while they are learning those lessons, um, McAuliffe with his uh, 101st Airborne Division now is learning new lessons in the Ardennes. Um, so the offensive starts, he then is in charge of the 101st Airborne Division, which is in strategic reserve, um, resting after Operation Market Garden, and he's the one rushing towards the Ardennes with uh, those paratroopers. Um, there's a second coincidence involved in him taking over at Bastogne because um, both airborne divisions are sent from that strategic reserve into, into the Ardennes at the same time, 82nd Airborne and the 101st. And it's not entirely clear in the beginning uh, which division is going to be positioned where. And it looks for a while as if the 101st Airborne Division is actually going to head towards the northern shoulder of uh, the, the, the salient. Um, but McAuliffe, in heading that way, um, takes the precaution of just jumping off Bastogne to talk with Middleton, eight corps commander, very experienced, to, to kind of assess the situation. And Middleton immediately says, well, no need to, to, to push on to the, the, the northern shoulder. We need you here and now. And so McAuliffe immediately, immediately radios to, to his troops that, you know, and his commanders that they will be heading for Bastogne and settle down there. Uh, McAuliffe is, is what, an Irish-American from Washington, D.C. He's, he's very stocky, not, not very large, not, not flamboyant in the sense that Patton was, for example, but he's, 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 he has physical stamina. Um, he's, he's as, as someone once said, you know, he didn't, didn't easily get fussed up about trivialities, so he's the right man in the right place, given what is to follow, of course. Most importantly, he is, as a brigadier general, he was the artillery commander of that division. And he very early on, of course, realizes that that is one of the main assets that his paratroopers will have inside Bastogne to try and hold on to that small town. Um, he, he is a man that reasons that his division has despite the fact that they will soon be completely surrounded, has some advantages in fighting this battle when compared to what they've done before in Normandy and Operation Market Garden. First of all, they jumped into Normandy and Holland. And then, of course, you get a dispersion of forces, of equipment. Here, they're trucked in. And so they arrive in Bastogne in a compact sense with all of their equipment still available, which they've that advantage they've never had before. Also, McAuliffe reasons, well, we're not a traditional infantry division that exists uh, of three regiments. We are four regiments. And so we can box in Bastogne perfectly to the north, east, south, and west with a regiment each. And he realizes that normally when they're sent into battle, Normandy, Holland, they have very 
by nature, of course, since they're airborne, light infantry backing them, uh, light artillery, I'm sorry, backing them up. They have that now too. And they've carried that over to Bastogne, but he knows that are those three to four battalions to the southwest of Bastogne in the southwestern perimeter with 155 millimeter guns, which they normally never have to back him up. And so you see that McAuliffe very early on makes sure that the artillery battalions around what is a place called Sononchon in the southwestern perimeter of Bastogne, that these are very thoroughly defended. He knows that if the Germans take the artillery there, the tone might be lost. And so there is oftentimes very, very heavy fighting. One of the commanders of the troops around Sonnenchamp protecting the artillery actually uh, first um, gets a distinguished service cross for us and, and then eventually is killed there protecting that artillery because McAuliffe knows that is a crucial element in our defense as an artillery commander. So he is the right man in the right place in Bastogne in the Ardennes. What were the rough perimeter defensive dispositions laid out by McAuliffe and his staff at the Heinz Barracks? Um, th those dispositions are very much influenced by, in a sense, coincidence that is in terms of which regiments go where in the perimeter around Bastogne. That is, they go to where they're most needed in the order in which they arrive at Bastogne because they are rushed in so quickly and they are needed so quickly that in the order that they arrive, they're thrown into battle. So what you see is to the west of Bastogne, the for the time being safest area for them to assemble um, near a town or a village rather called Mont de Saint-Étienne. Um, the first regiment to arrive is the 501st Parachute Infantry Regiment. The next is the 506th, to uh, which belongs E Company, Band of Brothers. Then arrives the 502nd, which is led by uh, Steve Chapwis. And then ultimately the 327 Glider Infantry Regiment. And so one after another, they're sent in around Bastogne into a perimeter where they're needed most. So the 501st arrives first and is sent on Tuesday morning. They arrive on Monday evening. They spend a few hours getting some sleep and then immediately before dawn on Tuesday, they're sent out to the, of course, Eastern gates of Bastogne and they settle there. Um, the 506th, which came arrived second, is then put to their left, mostly to protect the road coming in from the northern road into Bastogne from Ufalis. So they're back to the, the, the west and east of that main road. The 502nd is placed to the north of Bastogne and the 327 glider to the south and west. Now, that also means that each, the regiments arriving earliest and being sent out first get the smallest front lines because there's the most urgency. German troops are already there making contact uh, at Bastogne's gates. And so you see the, the 501st on the 
eastern gates very densely packed together. The 506, including the band of brothers on that road to Ufanis also, but then the 502nd to the north and the gliders to the west and south are spread much more thinly. Later in the siege, that will, of course, give problems. Uh, but during the very first days, the paratroopers are positioned by McAuliffe exactly in the perimeter where they're needed most, and they do their job well. You have to imagine that by Tuesday morning, Panzerleer, German armored division, is already knocking on the doors of uh, Bastogne's eastern side near villages called Majere and Neff. But as they do so, they clash with the first paratroopers of that 501st Infantry Parachute Infantry Regiment arriving already on the scene. And that is when uh, Panzerleer decides that, whoa, there is a, a rather strong force of, of, of very capable troops and where he hesitates and does not smash into Bastogne proper on that particular day. So, so they're sent out one by one to where they're needed most, uh, but backed up by other forces inside Bastogne. You have reserve forces, you have tanks from Combat Command um, B of the 10th Armored Division, quickly sent in by Patton's 3rd Army. So they're stationed inside Bastogne, as well as a, a team called SNAFU, Situation Normal, all fucked up. Huh? SNAFU, that acronym well known of World War II. And, and that team is made up of those who have survived the suicide missions to the east, uh, elements of the, the 28th Infantry Division, of the 9th Armored Division, and anyone who can still hold the gun is in that reserve force together with uh, uh, the 10th Armored Division's tanks and the tank destroyers. And so whenever there th threatens to be a breakthrough that the paratroopers with their fairly light uh, weaponry cannot withstand, reserves are being sent very hurriedly to where they're needed and they plug gap after gap supported also by the artillery uh, around Sonon-Champ to the southwest of the perimeter. And I think that that's the full picture, really, of how until the arrival of Patton on December the 26th at last, they managed to hold the fort, which is Bastogne. What role did African-American troops play in this battle? Well, they play a role that is often not just not well-known, but not known. I think very few people, interestingly enough, when, when I walk through Bastogne and talk about the battle um, visitors, they're not aware at all in of the fact that in, in, in popular history, you know, African-Americans inside Bastogne, they're never being mentioned, but they make up one of the very important heavy artillery battalions around Sonanchon. Uh, and I'm talking here specifically about the 969th Field Artillery Battalion. Uh, it is an African-American uh, battalion that has, has fought its way to Normandy, um, that has performed very well up to that time, that had been having a supporting role within the 28th Infantry Division, is then being pushed back gradually and is pulled into that Bastogne perimeter. Um, and sits down around Sonon-Champ 
to the southwest of the town together with other uh, heavy artillery battalions. They perform extremely well. You have to keep in mind that all of these artillery battalions around Sonochon, um, but also this African-American battalion perform well in the sense that they help stave off attack after attack to the east, the southeast, at one point the northwest over the next few days. So they help save the day, day after day. But while they're doing that, they have to withstand an onslaught from Germans who know <laughs> that these artillery battalions are crucial in uh, defending Bastogne. And so they want to, of course, um, capture them. So while they're helping out paratroopers left and right around Bastogne, they also have to stave off German attacks against their own batteries. Um, so they perform outstandingly. And indeed, Maxwell Taylor, when he returns at the end of December to his division in Bastogne from the United States, um, puts in a request for a distinguished uh, unit citation for that African-American uh, artillery unit, which then uh, comes through, I think, in February 1945. And if I'm not mistaken, it's the first uh, distinguished unit citation for an African-American combat unit in the war. So uh, it, it, is, it is too bad that, that few people know about how well that they were present, <laughs> that they performed so well, played such a crucial role in the defense of Bastogne. What were the most precarious days for the Americans inside Bastogne during the siege? Yeah, there are several, Lawrence, of course. Uh, I, I think I, I, I already mentioned one, which is that Tuesday, uh, again, on Saturday, the offensive counteroffensive was launched. On Monday evening, paratroopers begin to arrive in Bastogne. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, before dawn, they push towards um, Bastogne's uh, easternmost gate, which is located at, at a village, a hamlet called Neff. Um, and as they arrive in Neff, where there's just some engineer battalion left to put up a shield against uh, Germany's armor, Panzerleer, um, you see tanks smashing into Neff, heading, and you're just a mile and a half from, from Bastogne center by that time, you have to imagine. Uh, and they put up such resistance that um, they, they managed to dissuade Bayerlein, who is in command of Panzerleer, to push through straight away. He should have done that because it's a, it, it's a tremendous missed opportunity for such an armored division facing a reasonably thin shield at that time. Uh, McAuliffe later says that the performance of paratroopers there around Neff at the Eastern Gate on that very precarious day was probably one of the most um, um, important actions they ever undertook, uh, even comparing it to Vechel in Holland or Caranton in, in France. So that is saying something. But there are several uh, other occasions where the Germans come very, very close. Um, I'm thinking here about December the 23rd, uh, when they attack again, uh, Volks Grenadiers, backed up by Panzerleer elements from Marvi uh, to the southeast. They come very, very close to uh, Bastogne proper. And then I think one of the most dangerous days is, is Christmas Day, December the 25th, when you can already in the distance to the south hear Patton's third army pulling closer. 
And so the Germans understand that you know it, it is very urgent now to capture Bastogne. So on Christmas Day, they attack from the northwest. And they find, because these are experienced troops, of course, they've been fighting for many years, they find patrols have established that the seam between the 502nd Parachute Infantry Regiment to the north and on the, and on the western side, the 327th Glider Infantry Regiment, those regiments that were spread out thinnest initially, that that seam is very weak. And so you see the 26th Volksgrenadier Division that has been encircling Bastogne from the very beginning now is backed up by elements of a new Panzergrenadier Division, the 15th Panzergrenadier Division. And together they launch an attack from the northwest towards villages called Champ and Hemroul. Now, if you ever visit Bastogne and you visit Hemroul, um, where there's a very small church, you can literally, literally see Bastogne's stone center. So that is how close the Germans on Christmas Day got. Uh, that is a day where inside McAuliffe's headquarters, which is located in the northern part of Bastogne, they actually start destroying documents. They're arming clerks. They're rounding up bazookas within the headquarters because they're expecting German tanks to pull up to the Heinz barracks where they're located uh, within minutes. And the paratroopers... Um, managed to, backed up by uh, a separate artillery unit that had been sent with them, that had fought in Italy, but was not an integral part of the 101st Airborne Division. They, together with the paratroopers, managed to uh, hold that attack at the very last crucial moment. So, you know, many very precarious days in the run-up to Patton's arrival. You've already mentioned it slightly or hinted at it. Uh, one of the most famous film depictions of the battle for Bastogne are the episodes focusing on Easy Company of the 101st Airborne Division in the iconic series Band of Brothers. H how close does that version come to what you find in your book? And what did you discover about the experiences of Easy Company during this battle? Yeah, listen, uh, I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a very strong series and the depictions are um, quite realistic uh, based on, on many interviews, uh, source research. Um, and you see two episodes of the 10 in that series are um, uh, devoted to, to the battle for Bastogne. So that is saying much in terms of the importance that that battle played in the history of, of that particular company, E-Company, the Band of Brothers. Um, the second episode uh, dealing with Bastogne, by the way, is, if I'm not mistaken, called The Breaking Point. Uh, and I think that kind of sums up well that you know, very precarious mental state in which many, especially of the veterans uh, of that company are, as, as is the case in the entire division. Um, I was very much struck watching those episodes by what I... I, I like to do research, Lawrence, in, in, uh, for, for, for several of my books. I've done research uh, at the, the U.S. Army Military History Institute in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And they specialize in, 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 in collecting um, first-hand soldier accounts, letters, memoirs, diaries. And so I go through those 
for my books and specifically also those who hold Bastogne. Um, and what they've also done that Military History Institute in the past is put out when, when you, you know, many years ago when, when very many World War II veterans were still alive and able to respond, a, a questionnaire, a survey. And after I'd seen um, the series um, and like, like so, so many other people was in awe of, you know, uh, Dick Winters, I, I, I come across, I stumble across in that archive in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, uh, long before he, he, he became so well known, he had filled out his questionnaire for the Institute. And so he's very, oh, it's his handwriting. So I'm looking at the handwriting. Oh, this is, this is Dick Winters writing all this. So very impressed. But there's a question about morale in that survey, in that questionnaire. And, and I'm, I'm looking through his answer there. And he was very um, forthcoming about the fact that at one point he says in his answer, you know, you know the question is, you know, how, how was morale in your unit? And he says, morale was always good. And then he says, but the low point was Bastogne. And he goes on to explain that, you know, the, 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 the mental state that his troops were in, you know, they shouldn't have been there in terms of the exhaustive, the exhaustion they, they, they'd gone through in, in Normandy and, and, and Market Garden, that it was really asking too much of them to do the job at Bastogne. Um, and he also points at, at the, the, the circumstances, especially of climate, uh, lacking winter clothing, being out there in foxholes in these wet, freezing, uh, windy woods day after day, week after week. He said it was it was almost impossible um, to live through that, yet most of his troops did. That said, and, and I think the series also shows that the breaking point, some co come close to the breaking point, and he admits that. Uh, there's the example of, of Liebgott, um, I think a German or an Austrian-American uh, paratrooper in his unit who earned a, a decoration in Normandy, fought very bravely in Holland, but begins to crack in Bastogne. And you see Winters take that into account. He, he first uses him as a runner operating from his headquarters. And when that doesn't work, he sends him to divisional headquarters because he knows German and he can help uh, interrogate prisoners. Um, but but he, he's very open in that questionnaire, in that survey about how tough the battle for Bastogne was on the morale of even some of the most elite soldiers in uh, the US military. One thing we have to touch on, which has become almost legendary today, is the German attempts to bluff the American forces into surrendering the town. Can you talk us through this and what unfolded? it? Yes, that's 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 an, an an interesting day and an iconic event, of course, and it it takes place on on December the twenty second. So to put that into context, December the twenty first, day before, um, is when Bastogne becomes completely encircled, uh, and and the Americans who have been trying to you know run supply convoys. Um, discover that they can't get out anymore, not, not even on the Western side. They're completely encircled now. So the Germans by evening of the 21st are very well aware of, of, of the situation the Americans inside Bastogne are in. Um, at the same time, the Germans are very well aware of their own predicament, which is 
they're part of the fifth panzer army the 47th panzer corps that needs that is the most successful now in that Ardennes counteroffensive, and they need to head towards the Meuse as quickly as possible. They can't be bothered about Bastogne for too long, but ironically, they have to have Bastogne if their advance is going to remain successful and not have this so-called ulcer on their communication lines. Um, so because they need to rush to the Meuse, the Panzerleer division that in the very first hours was at Bastogne's gates in its entirety has already been siphoned off large. There's only one regiment remaining. And so von Ludwitz, commander of the 47th Panzer Corps, the day after the encirclement of Bastogne realizes that he doesn't have that much of concentration of power to crack that nut called Bastogne. So he tries some kind of bluff without even checking with von Manteuffel his superior commander, and he puts together a team, um, uh, two officers, one of them speaks English quite well. He was in, in, in the import-export business in Germany at one time. And they put together a message uh, appealing to uh, the commander of US forces inside Bastogne um, to surrender. Um, they put in a sentence saying, oh, we appeal also to your humanity, because if you do, don't surrender, we'll, we'll blow it to pieces uh, together with all of the civilians living inside. And, and this is not the American way of doing things. And they, they appeal to that side. And then they push off a delegation of four, uh, two officers and two enlisted men. Um, the two enlisted men um, go ahead and wave white flags. They enter the American lines on the road from Arlon into Bastogne, which is on the southeastern part of the perimeter. And they've put their weapons away, of course, they're unarmed, they wave the white flags, and then very tense moments as they you know, go into no man's land and then approach foxholes and they see American helmets and they're very afraid of being blown away. Doesn't happen, some paratroopers very carefully crawl out of their foxholes, ask them what, what it is they want. And as they explain what it is they want, that they have a message for the commander and so on and on, they put the two officers in a jeep, drive them uh, closer to Bastogne while the German enlisted men are asked to, you know, to just stand there and, and await the result. Now, the interesting part is that at that very moment, when that message is carried into the headquarters of the Americans uh, in, the, on the, in the northern part of Bastogne, McAuliffe is asleep. Uh, it's daytime, but he's taking a daytime nap because if his officers, his staff have told him after, you know, many of the, the, the very precarious days before, it would take a nap, you know, we'll wake you up if there's something really, really uh, important that you should know. So now they when they realize that the Germans are actually asking for their surrender, they realize, well, we need to wake him up. He needs to know. He needs to give a response. And it is when they wake him up out of a very deep slumber, deep sleep, McAuliffe, when you know, they wake him up, he's dazed, and they tell him what it is the Germans are asking. And he goes, oh, nuts according to legend <laughs> or not legend, we don't know for sure, but that's supposedly his response. And then later on, when they sit together and they're going to say no, of course, and they need to draft a reply, McAuliffe apparently, according to some testimony, doesn't know what to write down. And one of his officers said, well, just say what you said when you woke up, oh, nuts. You know? And so he puts down nuts, exclamation mark.
They go back to the officers, hand them that message, and the officer who knows English well, <laughs> supposedly, looks at that message and, well, this is an important message. He needs to relay it the right way to his uh, superior officers. Of course, he says, nuts. Yeah, one, one of the other Americans said, it means go to hell. And then the major who's with him and who doesn't know English that well <laughs> recognizes those words and said, we should go. We should be on our way. Oh, there's, there's no purpose to this. And then later on, when they return with that message, um, and von Manteuffel learns about the rejection of the ultimatum, well, learns about the ultimatum, by the way, because he didn't know von Ludwitz was going to try this bluff. He's very angry, very angry because, you know, von, von Manteuffel immediately realizes that they can't make good on their promise to obliterate Bastogne and, and push into Bastogne straight away because they don't have the concentration of power needed at that particular moment. They're going to wait until, you know, they try again at Marville two days later or Champ on Christmas Day, but not on that particular day. And so von Manteuffel feels that this is, is a kind of humiliation, very angry at von Ludwitz, but at least he's, he's tried. And this has become, of course, the stuff of legend now. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode on the World Nation podcast on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at World Nation, and also Instagram at World Nation HQ. And if you wish to help support World Nation podcast, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Nation HQ. Or support us at Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash worldwar2nation. The links for both of these are also in the podcast bio below. Thank you very much for your support. Obviously, also a big thank you to Peter for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. Part two of this conversation will be out very shortly. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the Worldwar's Nation podcast.